This podcast is called Obsessed. Joseph Scrimshaw and his guest get some secrets off their chest. You should listen. It's the best. Hello, I'm Joseph Scrimshaw, and this is Obsessed. Uh, I'm sitting here with a very good, very old friend, uh, Philip Andrew Bennett Lowe. Hey, hey. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> what up? <laughs> uh, Philip, as you can tell, is a fan of language. <laughs> A wordsmith, if you will. A wordsmith. <laughs> the call of the wordsmith. Hey, hey. <laughs> and I actually can't say what your obsession is out loud, because I am still not sure how it's pronounced. Tolkien? <laughs> Tolkien. But So it is Tolkien, not Tolkien. I've heard both. Here's or... the thing. Let me dive in and say that I have... <laughs> so... This is actually a thing, because uh, I was one of those kids that read a lot, I was a big book nerd, so I grew up, to this day, I mispronounce words that I've read right. all the time, so I, I am not any kind of expert in how things are supposed to sound. <laughs> okay, okay. I have a, a whole slew of incredibly intelligent friends who say the word melee as melee, because they read it in Dungeons and Dragons manuals when they were eight years old. And had no idea it was French. That's that's my whole and, and it's it's worse too because because I'm a, a storyteller so I I do this I use a lot of big words on stage and they're obscure enough that no one corrects me they just they assume that anything I say is correct. Excellent. So you feel it's Tolkien. I uh, oh god I'll 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 stick with that for now but I reserve the right to say Tolkien as the evening goes. I'm on. trying to get angry responses to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> little wave files of um it's Tolkien. <laughs> uh so uh for for the people listening at home or in their cars or maybe jail who knows uh can you tell people a little bit about who you are and what you do uh, my name is philip Lowe. i'm a storyteller i'm a touring storyteller and i'm a playwright i'm uh i know joseph from uh minneapolis and i'm touring to la right now which is why i'm here but uh yeah i stand on stage and i throw words in an audience and <laughs> and, and professor tolkien has something to do with that I'm sure. <laughs> you're creating a sense of mystery and intrigue uh cool so we'll dive in um i know this is a challenge for a wordsmith and for a fan of tolkien but if you could only use a very few words to tell Someone who's never heard of Tolkien, who he is, what what would those words be? He is he is the writer who successfully hybridized the modern novel and the medieval romance. That's what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> so you wouldn't mention Lord of the Rings at all. Well, we're, that would be meaningless if we're assuming they don't know who this person is. Fair <laughs> enough. Like, Fair enough. But okay. Oh, I love I love you, Philip. <laughs> but, Keep listening; it just gets better. <laughs> but this is this is um, this is a portrait of who you are that you uh, you you choose to get rid of the obvious and go for the complex truth, even when even when searching for a basic explanation, you won't say he's a writer from the twentieth century who created the hit novels. Lord of the Rings, <laughs> you would say what he successfully changed about our perception of literature. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's a great answer. It's a valid answer. But it is by far the most complex <laughs> version of the simple truth. <laughs> that was that was me going for simple. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So, uh, so I, I, I always research uh, the podcast uh, by reading Wikipedia. Yeah. So... <laughs> It's an equal opportunity ignorance on every topic on the podcast. <laughs> and I know a little bit about Tolkien because I'm a big geek, but some yeah. of it is sort of like a rumor and myth, and <laughs> some of it's incorrect and some of it isn't. Um, but I was really fascinated to read that I didn't realize that kind of uh, behind the scenes, out sort of even just the construction of Lord of the Rings, that he shared so many of your passions and expertise <laughs> specifically, the etymology uh, mythology, the world building, the yeah. fantasy, the <laughs> reconstruction of old myths. I didn't realize that he was like a one of the foremost scholars on Beowulf. Oh, yeah. oh, it yeah. makes perfect sense, but I just didn't know that fact. So my question is, if he had never actually written Lord of the Rings, but you still somehow discovered him, <laughs> would you be a fan of him as a human being? As a... 
without Lord of in terms of his like scholarly achievements. Yeah, or? if you were just like researching World War One and you happened to come across like this guy's obscure <laughs> autobiography about his life and his interests, and he'd never written Lord of the Rings, but he still had all these interests that you share and all these interests that got boiled down into Lord of the yeah. Rings. Would do you think you'd still be like become like a fan of this guy? Of like you guys, everybody's got to check out this Tolkien guy. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I like the things. I love his. Uh, he, he wrote an essay called "The Monsters and the Critics." That is one. It's a big thing. As like this is how academic analysis should be done in a way. Because I mean, his big achievement with that was because. Uh, uh, the way Beowulf scholars worked at the time was it was we look at this poem to find out history and how the people dressed and what they believed, but it's a really shitty poem. Was sort of everyone's so it's super academic. What I'm saying, yeah, what I'm saying is that Tolkien's approach was to go and say no, this is actually we should study this as literature. This is a really compelling, cool. Oh like, wow! You know? So he was like oldie time version of, but but actually there are many themes and ideas <laughs> in the Batman comic books that are relevant. He was he was the geek's geek. Definitely. Awesome, awesome. I read a little bit about that, and that he was that he would start his lectures with a little mini performance. Quiet. That's, that's, the, that's the opening word of Beowulf. Uh, it's Anglo-Saxon for hearken. Or, oh, for like, yeah. or yo. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, he'd, no, he'd walk into a room he, for his first class. He'd start some of his classes by reciting the opening of Beowulf. Okay, and, uh, and students would think he was shouting at them to be quiet, <laughs> but he was saying quiet. Yes. Wow. <laughs> cool. Uh, so, so he sort of popularized the the idea of of, of looking at it as this dynamic living thing. Oh yeah, totally. totally. Okay, so that connects even more with you as an actual <laughs> active storyteller. Yeah, he has this great thing that um, it's it's in the monsters and the critics, but he talks about he makes this analogy about a tower where there's this there's this guy who has a bunch of old stone in his field and he makes a tower with it and it's really rickety and it looks like crap and uh, all the scholars come in and they take it apart and look at where the stone came from and have a discussion about that. But the whole point of it is that. He built a tower so he could climb it and look out at the mountains and the sea and the... Wow, that's really so, like, cool. It, it is. But where he's saying, like, you're, you're completely missing the point by picking apart Beowulf this way. That's not what's great about it. That's cool. <laughs> that's interesting to me because I, I like Lord of the Rings. I have never made it all the way through the books because <laughs> I... To, for my taste, no, like, no. The, the romance and the excitement of the... Fuck you, it's not bricks, it's a tower, asshole. <laughs> like... I sense that, but to me it is so buried in almost literally <laughs> the trees for the forest, you oh, know? Yeah. Yes, no, it was, oh yeah, there, there's a scene in The Two Towers, which is, there's just this long morning song by uh, Quickbeam, where he just, uh, it's, it's, it's a song of him mourning his three favorite trees, <laughs> they were cut down, and their names and their histories. <laughs> so it is literally Morning by Quickbeam? Yeah, uh, Brigalod or Quickbeam is his name in the common tongue. Okay. <laughs> but if, if if somebody said, you know what's a really great top 40 hit, is Morning by Quickbeam, you'd be like, yeah, that sounds that's a contemporary of Lady Gaga and R. Kelly, right? Quickbeam. <laughs> he, d- he definitely took off with hippies. That was yeah. a big part of his... I, I think he was a little horrified by it. Okay, it was a yeah. big part of his success. I was going <laughs> to ask you about that in particular in one of my, one of my questions of... Why was he horrified that hippies loved Lord of the Rings? I think it was just that he was he was a he was a conservative Catholic. He was a very old school. I mean, his 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 children used to be mortified because he never acknowledged the Second Vatican Council. So he would in in church he would do all of his responses in Latin loudly when everyone else was doing them. <laughs> so like in the middle of the church, he was yeah. just which is basically just shouting like, "This is the way you should do it." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you think that it wasn't so much that he thought the hippies were somehow using Lord of the Rings, misinterpreting it philosophically for their movement. It was just like that they were dirty weirdos. <laughs> well, I it mean, was like, why was... are these dirty weirdos like my book? <laughs> well, he was, I mean, he was a guy who, he definitely had a real love of nature. It's that thing you're saying where huge chunks of his books just get bogged down into talking about trees and horses and their lineage yeah. and stuff. <laughs> 
but he was. But I, I mean, for him, yeah, there there was. I mean, he had. He was very conservative religiously. He had very stark ideas about the nature of good and evil. Yeah, and the sort of hippie philosophy didn't have a lot of resonance for right of the whatever man yeah (laughs) just put a flower in their rifle and everything's fine yeah Yeah. uh is there any group of people existing today or movement like the hippies where you find their movement so abhorrent that you would be upset if they came to your shows or liked your writing uh it's not so hypothetical. <laughs> I've done I've done a ton. I do a ton of retellings of myth and legend and stuff. Yeah. And I do like I've done a lot with Norse mythology. I've done a lot, and I get a lot of uh, a lot of the old hippie types who come out and are like, oh, that's right, the, who, in, into the really sort of neo pagan. And I, I'm kind of like Tolkien. I'm also a Catholic. <laughs> yeah. Like, and I'm sort of bewildered by the like. I find a lot of value in these stories, and a lot of a lot that's really beautiful and effective. And uh, but that's not the same thing as I'm. I'm not wearing Mjolnir around. My neck, <laughs> <you know? laughs> but do you, but is it actually like obviously like a kind of a neo pagan, almost a stereotypical kind of old school storyteller for people who know storytelling circles who, you know, it's kind of a, it's all about feelings and drum circles and sensitivity and, and, uh, in your storytelling style is very dynamic and it can be very political. So I can see people coming to your show and not and being like, that's not for me, but does it actively bother you that they are there? Cause that seems to be Tolkien's thing. Like, why are you reading my book? You assholes. <laughs> No, no. I mean, obviously, it doesn't bother me. I'm, I'm in no position to turn away audience. <laughs> okay, so Tolkien was successful enough to say, "Stop it, hippies." But it was also, I was having this conversation with uh, my fiance because she's a big C.S. Lewis fan. And I'm a mm-hmm. big Tolkien fan, and uh, and I'm just going to alternate between Tolkien and Tolkien for the rest of this interview. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll drop it in. I'll, I'll, edit. I'll just edit a robot voice saying <laughs> Tolkien every time. <laughs> But she, uh, but said because there's this play called Shadowlands, which is about C.S. Lewis and his romances and his theology and stuff, and uh, and I made the commentary. Well, why isn't there a play like that about Tolkien and his life? And, the, and she made the comment that you know because Lewis is dashing and romantic, and I was like, yeah, because if you ever see any footage of Tolkien, he's he's always like scowling and has his arms folded. <laughs> He's not, he's not something you want to be in a room with yeah. for an hour. <laughs> uh, reading his Wikipedia, there are a lot lot more moments of like romance in being dynamic than, than I thought, which I thought was awesome. Yeah. Um, so my next question for you is, uh, since it's generally agreed that he is kind of responsible for fantasy as we know it, right? Uh, now, would you want to sit down and play Dungeons & Dragons with Tolkien? Oh, God, no. <laughs> like, this is, he would be the worst... I, th- I imagine he would be the worst rules lawyer ever. <laughs> this whole thing. I mean, like, after like, he spent the rest of his life just trying to pound out all these details. Like, he was so into world building, and he got so obsessive about it. He, I, I, I don't know that he could relax enough to so, have an enjoyable... It, so, like, if you were going to play Dungeons & Dragons with Tolkien, you'd get together for that one pre-session where you roll up your characters, and then Tolkien would just want to do nothing develop his character right exactly Keep rolling minute status updates and yeah there's a great my my sister's uh a tolkien scholar she wrote for the tolkien encyclopedia and stuff like that but the she uh she teaches classes on the subject and she describes a great conversation she had of a student who didn't get why tolkien and lewis had all of these arguments back and forth okay. and uh the and finally she paused and said to him well why are there fawns in Narnia? And the guy was like, I don't know. And she was like, why are there centaurs? She was like, yeah. I don't know. And then she was like, well, Lewis didn't either, and that bothered Tolkien. <laughs> like, he couldn't just let loose this sense of whimsy. He had to understand where things came right. from and how they, you know. <laughs> Do you think he would be... I mean, obviously he was he was still alive when Dungeons & Dragons was starting, no. starting up, but do you think he would be annoyed with like how many of the sort of like most famous tropes of Dungeons and Dragons are like the the trope of there's an adventurer in the tavern and he approaches you is like that's straight out of Lord of the Rings, yeah, right? Yeah. Do you think that he would be annoyed in that same way? I think 
it, it's hard because he sort of went back and forth on this. Where like, because because he talked about the idea of a shared universe as something that was exciting to him, right? Like that he could build this, and cartographers and geologists and all these people would come in and build this world. But he was so finicky and so defensive anytime anyone actually did that. Okay. <laughs> did that so he was like building this like massive Lego castle and like <laughs> anybody can put a piece on and then C.S. Lewis is like in putting a little Lego piece on like no! Fuck that! <laughs> yeah, cool. They had such a weird relationship. I think. Yeah, I was reading about that too. Um, the Their group was called the Inklings. Oh, is yeah. that right? Oh yeah. Uh which, when I read that, all I could think was, it sounded like an improv group. <laughs> <laughs> the Inkling, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. So I was going to ask you if you think Tolkien would be good at improvisation, but that is clearly not the case. Not at all. <laughs> was, it's, it's like, there's that saying that uh, the difference between a humorist and a wit is a witty will give you something funny back right away, and yeah. a humorist... It'll take them months. And Tolkien was the kind of guy who he would give you a brilliant response months later. <laughs> so, so Tolkien doing improv would be like he would, he would stand up and say, "Can I get a suggestion?" Somebody would shout something out, and he'd say, "No." <laughs> Keep going till he gets something he likes. Then he goes away for a month, and then comes back with this massive, elaborate, beautiful scene. I want nothing in the world so much as to see the Inklings improv trip right now. I totally just want to do that now. It's like fiction conventions do the Tolkien improv. What is a fawn you would commonly find in mere woods? No. That is incorrect. Uh, so speaking of a, another derivation, possibly, of Tolkien, uh, would you want to sit and watch... HBO's Game of Thrones with Tolkien. Oh my god. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I would not walk away. I'm not saying this would be an enjoyable or pleasant experience, but I would want to have it. <laughs> do you think Game of Thrones is... Uh, do you think uh, Martin is influenced other than the... I mean, obviously, yeah. he's super, super scholarly. Right. Great world builder. Obviously, a little bit more into violence and yeah. sexuality than well, Tolkien was. Well, Tolkien's one of those guys where if you're writing fantasy at all, you're influenced either because you're imitating him or because you are deliberately trying not to imitate him. Right. I mean, he's so present that... Yeah. Uh, yeah and, and I'll jump right on and say that I haven't actually read Martin, although I'm, I've, I've seen episodes of Game of Thrones and stuff. Okay. And my impression is that he seems very... Uh, how to put it? He does that thing where he he does fantasy with all the fantasy stripped away. <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> like it's essential. It's it's essentially a, a, a political thriller. Is yeah. really what he's doing. I mean, there's not a lot in the way of uh, really exotic or extravagant. Uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there are fantasy elements. Like well, on the television show, they're everybody's reacting because they're they're becoming more prominent right. as the television show is is going on and. That's one of the things I like, that there is almost that contrast between the Lannisters in their nice city with all of their intricate politics are kind of vaguely weird, like, uh, yeah, there are, dragons do exist and and they might be a problem, and I guess somebody thinks that there are some zombies beyond the wall. Whatever. (laughs) Let's talk more about who's going to be the hand of the king. You know, it it seems like, I like it as, I don't, I don't know if Martin intended it as meta, but it almost reads as meta of... Sort of, uh, the Lannisters almost seem like they are criticizing people who wave their hands at fantasy. <laughs> that zombies and dragons aren't interesting or important because they're just sort of like, yeah, well, whatever, we'll deal with them eventually, but they're not really the important well, there's part this, of this. There's been this weird trend, hey, we're tangenting, there's been this weird trend in, in fantasy lately. Like there was uh, that Troy that came out, that King Arthur that came out, Mm -hmm. where their whole premise seemed to be taking these fantastic stories and stripping away all the fantastic elements. Like a story of Troy without any of the gods, a story of King Arthur without any magic or a grail or a, Uh you know? And I'm sort of bewildered by it where I'm like, why why would you want that? Well, do you you think it is an attempt to get away from some of the stiffness of Tolkien's prose, where, like, the characters are living and breathing, but sometimes you have to work to get there. 
I think. And <laughs> is, it, is it a response of like trying to make it about the character of like, not what are King Arthur's, you know, <laughs> philosophical viewpoints, but what would he do, you know, on a Tuesday if he didn't get enough coffee? <laughs> like getting down to that sort of like a little bit more nitty gritty reality of human response I, I mean it's a desire for grittiness definitely I, I, yeah. I just don't understand what the the sort of overall cultural impetus behind that is. so do, so you think Tolkien would be annoyed with Game of Thrones for downplaying fantasy in exchange for personal interactions I don't know I think he would be very resistant to the the sort of the graphic sex and violence yeah of it. I mean he was again very conservative curmudgeonly with yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> I don't know that he'd necessarily object to the notion of a medieval-esque story without fantasy elements. Okay. But, uh, I think he might ask the same question I'm asking, which is, well, then, what's the point? <laughs> yeah. I, and I, I think part of the point is that, that they are there. Yeah. And, and just a lot of the characters are just sort of like, yeah, we'll deal with it whenever. Right. Like, show me a zombie and then, and then I'll care. But until then... <laughs> Whatever. I know that they're a bit like, and then there's the, holy shit, oh god, there's zombies! Oh god! I'd also uh, challenge the, the thing about the the stiffness of the prose, because it's definitely there. It's in my bias. Big, yeah. In big chunks, it's there. Like, with uh, there's huge sections of heightened speech, and particularly once they get to Gondor and everyone's using this very courtly language. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I'd also say there's a lot of pretty sort of farcical, rustic, like, uh, with the hobbits. I mean, there's all this, like, like, there's a chapter where they're just sitting down with Farmer Maggot while he's, like, giving them mushrooms <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> and they're all part of the same book. And that's part of what's successful about his writing, is is juxtaposing all this heightened language with this very sort of colloquial... Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, I, I am probably being overly unfair <laughs> in, in my bias of, of wanting... I, I think I have the really stereotypical... Uh, the Hobbit is flowing to yeah. me and and playful and serious and just like the actual style of the prose and it, it spends a lot of time on character stuff mm-hmm. and then I feel like that just just starts to disappear entirely as soon as Frodo <laughs> leaves uh, yeah. and the, the, it, it starts to get very here are trees things are important <laughs> da, 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 da. like just kind of rhythmically <laughs> see and this is why people uh, have so much trouble with the Silmarillion is it's a uh, it's it's the world Without hobbits and without the, it's uh, suddenly uh-huh. it's all kings and warriors having grand discussions with each other. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hit HBO show coming soon. I'm sure. Uh, okay, so getting getting back to some of the the, uh, the questions, what is your take on Tom Bombadil? Do you like Tom Bombadil? I love Tom Bombadil. And just yeah. for anybody who doesn't know, can you give your your explanation of who Tom Bombadil is? <laughs> <laughs> you got three hours. <laughs> Nobody knows. Uh, so there's this weird section partway through the Fellowship of the Ring where the hobbits, they go through, they cut through this place called the Old Forest. That's this dark, scary, weird, magical place. Uh, and they meet this man who calls himself the eldest and dances around and speaks in song and rescues them from Barrow Whites and dances with them naked for and like he, two chapters. And he's kind of dressed like a hipster, right? He has like a ridiculous hat. He mm. has a beard and uh, bright blue his jacket is and his boots are yellow. <laughs> Look at me! <laughs> yeah, and it's he's one of the big because uh, Tolkien was fond of over-explaining everything, right? But he left a few really sort of intriguing mysteries in his story. And Tom Bombadil's a big one where he's he's there's lots of weird stuff like uh, he puts on the ring and nothing happens, right? You know, and like he can see Frodo when he's invisible, and there's this. And he's discussed in the Council of Elrond. He's this weird, powerful, strange figure that is never quite fully explained. Okay, <laughs> so do you think he he's a mystery? Or an intentional mystery? Or is that the bias of, we recognize Tolkien was a genius, so we're going to assume <laughs> that Tom Bombadil was an intriguing mystery he left for us, instead of, he just like, I like Tom Bombadil, I'll throw him in there, there'll be a song. <laughs> there's there's definitely both. Okay. There's definitely, okay. But, there, but there is, uh, because he keeps making a point of tying him into the sort of overall, I mean, that's one thing, Frodo raises at the Council of Elrond, well, why don't we give the ring to Tom Bombadil, because it didn't have any, because uh, he has power 
over it, and Gandalf yeah. corrects him, no, he doesn't have power over it, the ring has no power over him, and, like, we could give it to him, but he'd just throw it away or lose it and get bored. Like, <laughs> and he, and he's, he's continually brought up as part of the sort of larger mysteries of the story, okay. so I don't think he's quite a full... I, I think he was... Tolkien ha- does tend to get charmed by the whimsy of, uh, like, the first half of the Fellowship of the Ring is the hobbits wandering around and singing songs and drinking, uh-huh. <laughs> and he's so into that, more than I think any of his readers are. It's charming and funny. I would rather have them sing 800 songs about breakfast than hear one more fucking tree described. <laughs> that's, that's just me. So if Peter Jackson made a trilogy of Tom Bombadil movies. <laughs> would you go see those movies? Yes, and I would hate everyone. <laughs> <laughs> what is your opinion of the Hobbit movies? Are they a bloated mess, or are they an opportunity to share more of Tolkien's ideas? I'm pretty much in the bloated mess. Okay. <laughs> and, and I'm very much in the, particularly with the because I think my thing is the Lord of the Rings movies. For as much as I object and quibble like any geek does, they work as movies. If right. the books never existed, they make sense. They're self-contained. They tell a story. They. I feel like the Hobbit movies would be completely bewildering. <laughs> <laughs> you know? They're just wandering around and stuff is happening and and. Uh... Yeah, I, I, and and the biggest thing is by trying to turn particularly the story of the Hobbit into an action movie, you you completely marginalize Bilbo as the protagonist because he's not an action hero. Right. He's not. Yeah. Yeah. There and back and standing around watching again. Yeah. <laughs> no. So you've seen both of the movies. Yes. And I do have. you feel like I've heard some? I have, I haven't actually seen the movies, uh, but I, I've uh, read people's Facebook updates about them. <laughs> And I, I've seen a lot of people say, not only is it like bloated and messy and wandry, but the, that there was such reverence in the Lord of the Rings films, and that the characters are actually being like trivialized <laughs> or made fun of in a yeah. way, made doofy. Do you think that is true? I I think there's some. I think it's just it feels like. I made the comment, it feels like the Star Wars prequels, where they they can't be a story by themselves. Everything that happens has to be foreshadowing or tied to okay. something in a trilogy we know. And that's what I've said right a guest as the Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on record. <laughs> but it's, yeah, I mean, there's even stuff of trying to turn the dwarves into these great warriors. And, yeah. and in The Hobbit, they're not. Really, they're they're kind of cowardly. They're kind of, yeah. you know, they're they're a bunch of old greedy douchebags, basically, in the book. So, so when you're watching the films, it, do you just have a sort of analytical like, ah, oh, this is too bad, or do you have that sort of like very visceral geek reaction, just like wanting to reach up to the screen and change it with your hand? <laughs> I I want to reach. <laughs> and again, it's that thing for like with the, with the Lord of the Rings movies. For all my objections, there are still moments where I sat up and went, "Oh, that's so cool!" Oh, that's <laughs> Did so you cool. really stand up in the theater? <laughs> where it was like everyone quiet. I'm having a moment. Huzzah! <laughs> they were they were they were. Like I said, the, the Lord of the Rings movies work, and there's places where I feel like they violate the spirit of the original and do that kind of thing. But for the most part, they work. They're, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> like cool, cool. Uh, so uh, when I was reading on Wikipedia, it seemed like being in World War One uh, shaped a lot of Tolkien's oh, yeah. worldview. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and that's not an experience that we as writers uh, have to experience. <laughs> Would you ever want to be? You write a lot about war and about oh, yeah, what, it, what it does to people. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Would you ever want to be in a war for like two days, only for <laughs> writing research purposes? No one, no one wants to be in a war for any reason unless they're a psychopath. <laughs> so yeah, okay. Well, I'll, I'll rephrase the question: Are you a psychopath? <laughs> 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 you know, and actually, there's a great line, I think it's by Mary in the books, where he, uh, he's wanting to go to fight, and they keep telling him, no, you can't, and he says, uh, I don't want to be in a battle, I'm dreadfully afraid to be in a battle, <laughs> but I don't want to stay behind while all of my friends and family are in one, Yeah, <laughs> which I think was the position 
of so many people at that time. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but there, in terms of like Lord of the Rings in, in a lot of Tolkien's works, being sort of, uh, I know he didn't like allegory, but he... But, Loathed it. <laughs> uh, but what, what is the word that he used instead of allegory? Applicability. Right. So they're, they're, they're holding a mirror up to our world, yeah. up to a point, uh, not trying to track the orcs mean this in the real world. Right. But what the people's interactions with the orcs in this battle does reflect these, these kinds of issues yeah, that come yeah, up yeah. in war. So, since we, since a lot of people are not, are lucky enough to have not experienced war in this sort of global way that other generations have, do you feel like you as a writer are missing some fundamental understanding of humanity that a lot of the writers that you admire experienced? Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely feel the, the... I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I've. I've. We've. We've. We've been too lucky and too privileged, and we've had these. These wonderful. You know, I, I feel like Tolkien wrote the great novel of the twentieth century, because in so many respects, I think he had the best response to war. That I mean, this was the big thing of the modern novel was James Joyce and and T. S. Eliot and all these great right. writers coming. And how do you respond to this vast, brutal senselessness? Yeah. That, uh, and Tolkien saw just about the worst of it. I mean, all of his friends, part of the, the TCBS, the, the Tea Club and Bavarian Society, that was him and his friends, and they all died, except yeah. for him. He watched all of his close friends die. And that is, I mean, I, that, is, that really makes it extra senseless. Like, your tea club was slaughtered. It's just like, <laughs> that's horrible. It's like saying, well, we used to play Mario Kart, but they're all dead. It's like, that is... <laughs> Truly horrible. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you feel like, well, what do you feel like the Lord of the Rings statement on war is ultimately? I mean, it's very complex. It's uh, and I, 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 this is one of my big because there's this temptation that people have to reduce the Lord of the Rings to very simplistic terms and to like, oh, right. it's good and evil, and there's good people and bad people, and the and <laughs> it's and I think that's you know what I think that I think that's people trying to apply allegory to it. Okay. It's people trying to say uh, the ring represents nuclear power and Saruman represents industrialism, and, <laughs> and that's not what the story's doing. But we see a number of characters with very complicated. Uh, Faramir is my. If Tolkien has a voice, it's probably Faramir. Although okay. I'd be hesitant. But it's his, uh, I love not the sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness. I love only the things that they defend. And, uh, okay. and how he views uh, the way that Gondor has come to regard warriors as greater than scholars as a sign of sickness in his society. <laughs> yeah. You know? so, I, so do you feel like the, the Lord of the Rings is trying to uh, depict both the horror of war, yeah. and but also the reaction when when people feel it is necessary, that there is literally kind of no escape from it. Certainly to me, my understanding of Lord of the Rings is that that is a huge part of what the story is, is Frodo feels like he has no choice. Yeah, oh, and it's a definite... Uh, yeah, and that's another line by Faramir, is war must be when there is an enemy who would devour all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, the, but it's that thing where... Frodo becomes so disgusted, he he flings his weapons into into the plains of Gorgoroth and says, I will bear no, no weapon again, fair or foul. He's uncomfortable with wearing a sword even for ceremonial purposes. He's uh, And then the, there's the whole scouring of the Shire where... Frodo keeps saying, "Oh, we don't want to. We don't want to fight. We don't want to kill." And Pippin just says, "Look, we can't stop this by being shocked and sad. We <laughs> <laughs> you know? There's no song. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the the a war is terrible and ugly and horribly. It's sometimes necessary. Yeah, I think is his... okay. <laughs> so let me let me ask about this allegory thing. I understand what we're, what Tolkien is saying is that I am mm. not trying to sketch out." these events to match any events. It's not like an episode of 1960s Star Trek where, like, <laughs> they hate him because he's white on one side and black on the other. Like, <laughs> this is pretty easy text to read. Uh, but when he is writing things, when the the actual war, the huge event of Lord of the Rings right. does have incredible rhythm with World War II when so many people were like, we are so done with war and we are only fighting because 
the fight is going to come to us. Yeah. How, do you? I, I I think authors can only control. You know, in, intent <laughs> intent is one thing, and then if you're lucky enough to be so well regarded and remembered by history, eventually yeah. interpretation is is valid. So how how do you, how can you look at those comparisons of World War Two and and just say that's there's no allegory here? I, I mean, he's he's obviously influenced by the things that are going on yeah. at the time that he's right. And these were formative events. For, like, he fought in World War One, and his son was fighting in World War Two. He was sending him chapters of The Lord of the Rings while he was Oh, deployed. wow. I did and not like, know that. You know, I, I mean, so obviously he's conscious of it. I, I mean, at the same time, he was working on The Lord of the Rings well before a nuclear bomb was anything he was ever conscious of. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, he'd seen enough terrible industrial war come about in his life, but it's, I, I mean, his whole argument with with uh, allegory versus applicability is, allegory is, it's the Aesop's fable thing. Mm-hmm. It's the, this is the code where I plug this in, and this is the hidden meaning of the story. And, I mean, the way he uses applicability is, you're building a secondary creation with internal consistency in which a variety of parallels can be found. I mean, right. that's what he's saying with applicability. It's not that... So, yes, well, well, the War of the Ring obviously has big resonances with World War II. I'd say it also has resonances with the Hundred Years' War, or the French and English War, or the... I mean, it's the grand apocalyptic... Uh, yeah, I, obviously it influenced it. That's not the same thing as yeah. saying that one represents the other. <laughs> but do you think that that's a, it, it, do you think that it's a little bit of the um, the need for control though as well <laughs> to say this is what it is? I mean, he's yeah. he's an author who's coming out saying, "Don't read the text this way. Yeah. That's the wrong reading of the text." Well, yeah, and I mean, he definitely had the. But every writer has that to an extent. Of yeah, the, I mean, he was having Nazis who were trying to hold uh, hold up his work as a sort of white power thing, which he found totally repugnant. Yeah, <laughs> I can see that. So, like, at some point, a writer... its a, I think it's reasonable for a writer to stand in and say, no, you're wrong. That's not at all where I'm going with this. But but I do think he... I think, I think you're right. I think he did tend to be hand-wavy with... Uh, one thing... Uh, there were a lot of people who kept trying to draw parallels to the Ring of the Nibelung. And, oh, okay. Uh, and uh, his comment was, both the rings were round and there the resemblance ends. <laughs> and fuck you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's such bullshit. Because it's a story about a ring that's tied to the power of invisibility that gives you the power to rule the world and it destroys everyone who takes it. It's like, yeah. obviously there's a parallel <laughs> and that you were totally conscious of and well-educated in. You can't pretend yeah. that you were you had no idea. <laughs> uh. So, so jumping off of the, the war thing, uh, I read the cool uh, Tolkien quote that I had never heard before when asked who really won World War II. He said, the machines. Yeah. Meaning yeah. that he, and he seemed to have issues with industrialization in general. Oh, yeah. So how do you think Tolkien would feel if he were suddenly brought back to life and saw a bunch of people reading Lord of the Rings on nooks? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I think he'd... Uh, he was always a pretty hardcore Luddite. I think he'd be pretty <laughs> unhappy with uh, the existence of books on screens he, at all. And then uh, he would like, value the tactile? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> if he, So the industrialization thing seemed to be one of the few things that he, was, that he maybe owned up to a little bit oh, yeah. of allegory. Oh, that's what the scouring of the Shire's about, is the... Yeah. <laughs> mechanizing it. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, if you could get drunk with Tolkien <laughs> and you could only debate one topic with him or quiz one topic, what topic would you want to have a drunken discussion slash fight with Tolkien about? Oh my god, drunk with Tolkien. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting this out, but, but every scenario in my head breaks down to me just... Drunkenly grabbing him by the collar, shaking him, and demanding that he explain 
all his unexplained, like, what happened to the Entwives? Who is Tom Bombadil? What, like, <laughs> I know you know. <laughs> okay, so you would hammer him on when he was he was so exhaustive and complete in his knowledge. Why did he hold back some of these things? Yeah. <laughs> Do you have theories yourself to oh, fill yeah. those in? Yeah, to, but I think... I. I think if Tolkien was here, he'd say that the mystery is part of the point. <laughs> like the, but it's that tower thing where, like, because the whole reason he was so into Beowulf was it did such a good job of showing all of these other stories and adventures and lands happening on the corners of what was going on. And that's cool. exactly what he achieved with The Lord of the Rings is, well, we're following this action. There's so much more going on and thousands of years of history and all this. That's what's so compelling about it. It's not that this individual story is so great. It's that it's happening in this incredibly developed world. And there's, there's, I, I think this is another reason why a lot of people dislike the Silmarillion because a lot of it is just laying out, here's the timeline, here's what happened, here's who yeah. did what. And in some respects it's really compelling and in others that kind of kills what's exotic about it. Is it, I mean, is the Silmarillion a novel at all, or is it just like a, a history book of an altered alternate history? It's a, the, the way I, I read it now, because I, I still pick it up and reread it, but never from beginning to end. Okay. <laughs> but it's like, uh, I, I read it like a collection of short stories okay. at this point, where there's a few passages that are really developed, like the story of Baron and Luthien is really beautiful, the story of the fall of Gondolin, the story of the children of Hurin, and the, but, uh, you know, it's it's. I mean, he never completed it. It's collected from his notes, so it okay. doesn't it doesn't read in a way that's sort of logical and satisfying. It's a it's a collection of stuff with flashes of incredible brilliance. In okay, it. is there any Tom Bombadil in it? He is not. He is not mentioned. <laughs> like, not even not even in the background. I'm like, <laughs> nope. <laughs> there's a singing hipster who walks by. <laughs> Although he, he did write a, a collection of poems called The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. That's him just skipping around and singing and fighting trees and stuff. <laughs> fighting trees? Evil trees. <laughs> well, good. Yeah, he wasn't an asshole, but <laughs> Tom Bombadil didn't just get drunk and like, hey, fuck you, trees. Let's go. How great would that be? <laughs> well, that would definitely uh, be in my bloated trilogy about Tom Bombadil. That would be the first chapter of Young Tom Bombadil. <laughs> Picks a fight with a tree for no reason at all. Uh, okay, so uh, you can feel free to interpret this question however you want. Oh, God. Just out of the blue. <laughs> are you a golem or are you a Smeagol? <laughs> uh, I would like to believe that I'm a Smeagol, Aww. but truly I think I'm a golem. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think about the sort of divide? Do you think that that is, I mean, there's so many, like, so much I think of our current media with our passion for superheroes is a lot about that divided psyche. Right. Do you think that Tolkien was interested in creating a picture of a character with a divided psyche, or was he, or should we see him as a gradation? I I, I don't know that he would phrase it that way. And and first of all, the, the movies do tend to make more of that in the books to make okay. it much more clearly delineated than the books do although it does i mean sam gives them names he calls them slinker and stinker <laughs> <laughs> so they're aware that there's sort of two sides of him at war yeah whatever. but uh i don't know it's, it's funny i just i just did a rewatch of a bunch of lord of the rings like we watched those shitty cartoons and <laughs> <laughs> but in just about every adaptation Gollum's the character that's pretty much left untouched. Like any writer who goes to that book and sees, like, this is great. He We're just is amazing. This. Yeah. this is compelling stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like, he was on to something. And there's a great. Um, I, th- I think it was Tom Shippey who wrote this, but he said. Uh, the thing that makes Gollum so resonant, and particularly for us in modern times, is that there's a word that has come into our parlance that wasn't in at the time that Tolkien was writing and uh, that, uh, you know, it's the reason why Faramir and Gandalf can just walk away from the ring and why it has such devastating effect on Frodo over time and all yeah. stuff, and that word is addiction. And that's what that's what Gollum is, is it's a portrait of addiction. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, so Gollum's just, he is almost literally a meth head. Yeah. In his appearance. 
and, and he, he looks like well with the bloodshot eyes and the yeah. frail like he's he's someone who's just been physically and mentally wrecked by needing this thing. So do you do you think that uh, that Tolkien saw examples of that and was trying to create some applicability with that character, or or did the character just serve the function of showing? I, I the evil of the ring. I don't know if it was that conscious on his part. I okay. don't know that he ever would have said that. And again, it's... I mean, the great thing, because uh, his son's published all these volumes of here's his notes and showing how the story sort of came together. Okay. And uh, the fact that he really was not much of a planner. Wow. Like, he, I, I know, that's the shocking thing. Because he was a great world developer, but like, and like with that story, he was stumbling through from chapter to chapter for the most part. Okay, about and like the, actual like plot structure. Right, and I think when he first created Gollum in The Hobbit, I don't know that he had any great deep ideas for yeah. why he was or who he was. But then as the story grew and he sort of folded it in, he sort of he had a fantastic instinct for how to make that story work. But yeah. I, I don't think it, you know, when Gollum shows up in The Hobbit, I don't think he has any plans for where that character is okay. ultimately going to go. No, it's, it's funny if you read those, because, first of all, the way he rewrites is, uh, when he gets stuck, he just throws everything out and starts over from chapter one. <laughs> he does this, like, 20 times, and it's so aggravating to his editors. <laughs> and, like, but there's stuff like, uh, Strider is Trotter, in <laughs> and, he's a, and he's a hobbit, he's not the king of Gondor, he's, he's just some, Trotter the Hobbit? Yeah, <laughs> but it's stuff like this, where, or when they're hiding and the rider first comes up, in some versions it's Gandalf, in some versions it's an elf, and so it's, it's a while okay. before he hits on, no, it's a Nazgul, and the story changes it, like, he's, it, like, he doesn't have a plan, okay. you see it so clear by his nose, he's... And I think that's why the Fellowship of the Ring starts out where it's just wandering around and singing. For and you gotta go somewhere. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. And that makes sense of Tom Bombit a little bit, too. Okay, so uh, have you consciously tried to make your life follow Tolkien's life? No. I, I have definitely tried to imitate his work more than I should, and in ways that almost always embarrass me. <laughs> but I haven't tried to map. Uh, yeah, your life. friend show Trotter the Hobbit was <laughs> a little embarrassing. <laughs> uh, but but I just found it fascinating. I know you well, and I know your interests well. And it was it was weird to start reading the Wikipedia page <laughs> and realize that all of these things that he was very scholarly and very interested on. And even, if you don't mind me getting this personal, even yeah. his his uh, pursuit and feelings about his life partner, to me it sounded a little bit like you and your fiancé of, uh, you know, your your passion for one another is is very clear. It is, it, it, you guys look like what was being described in Wikipedia. Just, I mean it as a compliment, but that sounds yeah, yeah, horrible yeah. to say. Yeah, I read something on Wikipedia that reminds me of your relationship with this world. <laughs> But people are talking like that they had such clear affection in that it looked yeah. like a very old relationship. No matter how right. young they were in the relationship, it <laughs> seemed like this is a very old, uh, <laughs> rich, you know, a romance. Uh, you know, and on their on their tombstones, it reads Baron and Luthien, the which are the it's his love story from the first age of the man who fell in love with the elf maiden, our Baron and Luthien. He use those names when they died on their the the stone. <laughs> oh wow. Wow. Well how do you feel about that? Do you think that is crossing a line between the romance of fiction and the romance of real life? I sort of feel like it's his story. He can do whatever the hell he wants. <laughs> <laughs> you mean his life? Yeah, I mean I don't know. And it's definitely there's a sense of uh of great unworthiness in that story. Of this this someone who's a mortal man and this this gorgeous, unattainable elf maiden. Okay. This, uh, and I, I, if I had to guess, because I know he would hate <laughs> trying to plumb into his psychology on this, I think that's where it resonated for him, was of, of having this very, this beautiful, intelligent thing that he wasn't, he what on some level was not worthy of. Okay. But it's, you know. Do you feel like you're not worthy of your fiancé? Oh, who the hell feels like they're worthy <laughs> of anyone they're with? <laughs> 
So that's a very defensive yes? <laughs> that is a very defensive yes, absolutely. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, yeah, I, I, I plan, well, when Sarah and I are buried, to just have a tombstone that says, I was not worthy. <laughs> I think that's pretty healthy. Uh, but in terms of just, like, the, the components of his interests, of the etymology, the mythology, yeah. the high fantasy, you didn't ever consciously tick off the list of, Tolkien's interested in that, so uh, I will be too. Or it's just, you know, you know, I can trace. I, I, you can trace just about all of my interest back to the Lord of the Rings. Okay. <laughs> so like, you you yeah. reversed engineered Lord of the Rings. <laughs> well, it, it was a thing because I remember, like, I read the Lord of the Rings when I was very young. I think I was about six, and then I. I I started going through my folks' bookshelves and I found all these copies of Norse myths and Eddas and stuff and I was so excited because there were all the names. There was Balin and Gandalf and the, and then I got really into those and then I got so I, I I mean I they were exciting to me because there was something sort of exotic and authentic about mm-hmm. them to me, which is why I got into the Norse and Arthurian. But it, it traced backwards from being deeply impressed as a kid with uh, the Lord of the Rings and cool. this world and wanting to see more of it. <laughs> cool, cool. Well, I have my questions about uh, how obsessed you are. And in general, <laughs> you're open about being an obsessive person. Oh, yeah. Like oh, me. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I, I suspect you'll be pretty obsessed, but we'll see. Uh, do you think about Tolkien every day? Yes. Have you spent a lot of money on Tolkien? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> how have you managed to do that? Uh, because like there are only so many books in movies. It's not like with like my Star Wars problem where they're like, oh, there you can get anything. You can get a pile of shit that with yeah. Princess Leia's face on it. I mean, uh, well, as, as as I mentioned, I just bought my fifth copy of the Silmarillion <laughs> this week. When you mentioned we did this, <laughs> I, I didn't have one of you, my four with me. So <laughs> like, I mean, there's stuff like that. I uh, and I I buy up the secondary. You know, I hate it and I buy it, which is the true measure of geek. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. Like, I've bought the video games, I've bought, okay. the, like, just because, just to get, like, a glimmer of the world. It right. It's so exciting to me. Okay, so, yeah, so <laughs> video games. Yeah, I, guess the, I guess there was a lot of merchandising with the Lord of the Rings movies. So yeah. did you buy a lot of merchandising surrounding the movies? Games, I was super into, <laughs> I was didn't buy these, but I was super into fan edits. For a while of oh okay yeah, yeah, of um, people trying to like take the footage and do different things with them and oh cool different cool stories and like I was I was obsessed with that for months oh yeah <laughs> that that seems like a, a rabbit hole you could easily follow <laughs> uh, would you discuss Tolkien with Hitler oh god yes and Hitler with Tolkien both preferably <laughs> in the room at the same time so you would play D and D with Tolkien and Hitler. <laughs> But I mean that would be so freaking interesting because especially because I mean they had a uh, Tolkien was fascinated by Hitler and I mean the, Hitler very successfully used romance and mythology to build up influence and and it horrified I mean I mean Tolkien called it uh, called Nazism the corruption of the noble Germanic spirit I yeah mean, the, and I mean you see it in the writers of Rohan and in uh, this idea of the sort of fell Anglo-Saxon dark glory that yeah. he was so into and, and seeing it twisted to a very ugly agenda was it offended him deeply <laughs> so so you'd give hitler a good talking to <laughs> I'd, I'd i'd ask him about i'd i'd, I'd want to learn i'd want i wanted to be a teaching mother. <laughs> <laughs> uh, would you watch an adaptation of the silmarillion directed by adam sandler Yes. <laughs> I, I, I might cut myself when it's happening. <laughs> so there'd be a soundtrack by The Cure. Oh, God. You'd be cutting yourself. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a really brutal question. I, I, I mentioned this on the podcast, uh, the last one I did. I've been asking this Hitler question yeah, for a while, yeah. and it's good and insightful. And then I added Adam Sandler. It's though he has the same <laughs> Which says a lot about me. Uh, would you write... Uh, Bilbo Baggins slash Gollum slash fiction. No, but I would read it with deep interest. <laughs> Fair enough. How uh, how would you feel if all of the guests at your wedding showed up cosplaying Tom Bombadil? 
I might weep with joy. <laughs> I did. I did suggest, you know, half jokingly in that way where it's not really a joke. You're just oh, yeah. sort of gauging a response of the. We could totally do a Fairmere and Eowyn uh, wedding, and it. <laughs> wouldn't that be funny? And no, it did not go no. anywhere. <laughs> well, uh, you're I'm, you're putting together your wedding right now, right? You're working on it. Obviously, weddings are a deep, for anybody who likes tradition in the history of tradition yeah, and the why of doing absurd, <laughs> weird things, and should we sleep with a sword in the bed the first night, and all sorts of creepy, weird things. Well, some uh, of us sleep with a sword in the bed every night. Every night, so. yeah. Uh, are, you, are you building in uh, thematic elements that might have some resonance with Lord of the Rings? We have... We have talked about uh, a number of medieval elements, not Lord of the Rings. Although uh, uh, the road goes ever on has been suggested as a, as a, <laughs> as a reading. song okay. or a reading. Nice, nice. Uh, when I got married, uh, it was important for me to work a couple of jokes into the ceremony. Right. Meaningful yeah. jokes, like I didn't yeah, want to yeah, just yeah. like turn and do knock knock jokes or whatever. But yeah. like, but it been Sarah understood because comedy <laughs> meant a lot to me, and comedy means a lot to her. So I wanted there to be that sense of humor about it. Yeah. Uh, in their their word, like some good, solid, true laughs <laughs> in our wedding that were like about something. Uh, and then, and everybody really enjoyed the ceremony and was like very kind about, like that was a really fun yeah. wedding because it was honest, but it's still funny. Uh, and we got married in 2006, so the Lord of the Rings movies were still fresh. Right. And I have geeky uh, interests, obviously. And then a bunch <laughs> of people were like, it was funny, but I expected you to make a Lord of the Rings reference. <laughs> and it really bugged me. It bugged me in a sort of anal retentive way. Because, like, if I was going to make a geeky reference, it would have been Star Wars. <laughs> and I made the choice to leave geeky references out of my wedding. Why would I make a Lord of the Rings reference? Uh, it's too obvious. Um, it's like doing a Klingon wedding, right? It's not like, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but never. And now you may bite the bride. <laughs> No. Uh, if you could not read Tolkien without first being punched in the balls, would you still read Tolkien? Yes. <laughs> and the worst part is I would come to associate being punched in the balls with the pleasure of reading Tolkien. It would become a Pavlovian. I, I couldn't read Tolkien without being punched in the balls. This is what would happen. <laughs> that is an excellent answer. Uh, do you ever think you like Tolkien too much? Have you ever had a moment where, like, crossing the line? Not until this moment, no. <laughs> no <laughs> not until the ball-punching joy <laughs> of reading the eighth copy of The Silmarillion. Uh, I've been offering people to uh, uh, make a noise to sum up their obsession. Uh, and sometimes it's really easy, depending yeah. on the topic. Uh, with Tolkien, <laughs> what noise would you make to sum up your obsession with Tolkien? Hey, uh, what does that mean? It is, it is uh, in the Silmarillion when Eru Ilavatar creates the universe. Ea is the word for that is which is, which is the first word he speaks and brings the universe into being. So Aya means it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, is there anything else that you, you want the world to know about Tolkien or, or your obsession with him? I, I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> you want to leave some mystery. Like I Tom do, Domino. exactly, exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so, uh, final questions to wrap up. Uh, if you could ride any animal is a legitimate form of transportation, what animal would you want to ride? I know it's obvious, but dragon. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. You could get around and yeah, yeah, you yeah. could get other people out of your way. Yeah, and you could, you could lay waste to your enemies. <laughs> <laughs> As just a side goal. <laughs> I mean, you could you could achieve the same thing of like a car with machine guns, <laughs> but it's romantic when it's exactly, a dragon. Exactly, people would enjoy being mowed down. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm on fire from a dragon. It's a cool way to go. I shouldn't have made that slow left turn in front of Philip Lowe. <laughs> Uh, okay, if you had the power of super speed, but you could only do one action at super speed, what action would you want to be able to do at super speed? Uh, time travel would be the... Uh, if we're assuming that this is like super liminal, like faster than the speed of light, I'm assuming that's an option. Oh, sure. So that's yeah. what I go for, yeah. So you would only want to be able to move fast to travel in time. Yeah, why not? <laughs> 
So you could go do improv with Tolkien. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Force him to do improv <laughs> at Dragon Point. <laughs> no. Uh, finally, uh, the last question for everyone. What is happiness? I've answered this before, but... Uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go... Since this is a Tolkien podcast, I'll go with the more poetic answer, which is I think happiness is change. I think it's, because uh, it's the, it's, you know, in every depiction of hell, hell is doing any one thing forever. Right. And I, I think this, uh, here, I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try to swing it back <laughs> to a point, which is, this is a big thing with Tolkien and with, uh, with the elves in particular, with their uh, undying immortal lives and how they have this tendency to want to stop decay, stop change, freeze everything in one place. And that, that ultimately, that's beautiful and compelling, but ultimately it's a sign of a sickness as well and why the elves have to fade and bring in the dominion of men that uh, uh, anything eternal is a sickness change is the only place that happiness can happen that is awesome <laughs> and we will change the status of the podcast from going on to stopping <laughs> that is our podcast you've been listening to obsessed joseph scrimshaw and his guest shared some stories with the rest rate five stars if you're impressed here we are at the end of the podcast, uh, an advertisement for my crowdfunding uh, adventure, Patreon. Uh, you can find it at patreon.com slash josephscrimshaw, and I am writing comedy blogs, and uh, funders give me just a little bit of money for every comedy blog, and there are goals within this. I'm very close to unlocking the goal of creating a holiday comedy album, because I don't see why a singer should have all the fun. So it would be a holiday comedy album about all sorts of things, and you'll be able to listen to it around Thanksgiving time instead of interacting with your family. Uh, and to make this uh, Patreon ad more special, Philip Lowe is going to tell you what J.R.R. Tolkien would feel <laughs> about Patreon. Tolkien would listen to your description of it carefully, think for about five minutes, and then would raise his eyes, slow burn you, and say, No. <laughs>